Welcome to the Special Needs Kids Are People Too podcast with Amy Bodkin, EDS. Amy is an autistic adult who also happens to be a school psychologist turned special needs consultant and public speaker. She's also a homeschooling mom to two autistic kiddos, a yoga instructor, a card-carrying Trekkie, and an all-around fun person. And last but not least, Amy is an advocate for seeing every child as a person, not a diagnosis. Because a special needs kid is just like any other child, just more so. Here's Amy Bodkin. Hi, I'm Amy Bodkin, coming to you from the blanket fort in my office, and welcome to Special Needs Kids Are People Too. This week, I spoke at the ABA International Conference in two different symposiums. They were titled, Nurturing Neurodivergence, A Glance Toward a Humbler and More Inclusive Field of Applied Behavior Analysis, and Towards Applied Behavior Analysis Reform, What It Means to Do No Harm. I could talk for days about ABA, and it wouldn't be all positive. Um, There are many autistic adults out there who have been harmed or abused by ABA, and I'm not saying that all ABA therapists are evil people, because I don't believe that. What I am saying, though, is that sometimes we don't have strong enough ethics codes to guide practice to keep children from being harmed. And there are a lot of very difficult ethical considerations that need to be considered. For example, who is the client? Is it the parent who's paying for it, or is it the child? Who gets to decide what is being worked on? Is it something the child wants to work on? Or is it something someone else has decided the child needs to comply with? Those are very important questions to ask. Uh, But before we talk about that, we really have to take it back a step and really talk about psychology as a whole and diagnoses. Are they helpful? Are they harmful? I like to describe psychology as using your heart and your hands. There was a Star Trek Next Generation episode that I enjoy called Contagion. And in it, there's a computer virus that travels to all of the electronic devices in the ship, including the medical bay. And a medic comes in and says, I've got a problem here. The knitter isn't working. And Dr. Pulaski says, try a splint. The medic says, doctor? Dr. Pulaski says, splint, it's a very ancient concept. You take two flat pieces of wood or plastic, a bandage, the broken limb is kept immobile. Doctor, that's crazy. That's not practicing medicine. Dr. Pulaski says, oh, yes, it is. It's a time-honored way to practice medicine with your head and your heart and your hands. So jump to it. There have been times in medical history where we have... Um, made choices that ended up not being the best practices. Bleeding people when they were sick is a classic. But it wasn't that people were trying to harm people. They just didn't know better. They were using their head, their heart, and their hands to the best of their ability. And in the field of psychology, 
we have not mapped the brain. We don't have a complete understanding of how it works. And so much like ancient physicians, we're using our head, our heart, and our hands to do the best we can to offer the best supports we can. And we do that by creating diagnoses to help us categorize um, which types of supports are most likely to help, because otherwise you end up looking at all of the possible supports, and that takes a while to dig through. But if we have them categorized, then it's easier to kind of give you a starting place. So that's the whole purpose of them. And generally, diagnoses shouldn't scare us, because children already know they're different. And when we give them a diagnosis, it's giving them the opportunity to realize that they're not alone and that there are others out there just like them. And that can be an amazing thing. To think that you're the only person in the world like you and that everybody else is the same and you're the only one that's different, that can be a very lonely feeling. And so in that way, diagnoses can be very helpful. It gives us more community. It connects us with others who also have some of the same shared life experiences that we can learn from and that we can come to understand ourselves better through. So that's a really important benefit of diagnoses, along with accessing needed supports. But the way we name and organize diagnoses does reveal a lot about what we value as a society. And I think a lot of times there are things that we don't necessarily want to acknowledge that creep into the way that we diagnose um, or the way we word different diagnoses. If we really want diagnoses to help, they should reflect what we know about neural processing. And we have not caught up to that point really yet. Instead, we tend to diagnose based on the symptoms that we see, not what is causing the symptoms that we see. And sometimes that can make it very difficult to figure out which supports are going to be the best choice. Uh, one of my favorite examples is dyslexia versus hyperlexia. Neither one of those are official diagnoses. You would diagnose both of those as a specific learning disability and choose the category as being reading. For dyslexia, it would typically be slower reading or struggling to read at all. And for hyperlexia, you might see some delays in um, different types of reading or listening comprehension. Not that comprehension is impossible, just that it's processing differently. But if we think about the way that we've worded those, dyslexia, dis. Dis is a prefix that means bad or difficult. Whereas hyperlexia, 
Hyper is a prefix that means over or excess. Bad is, it's not, it's not really a positive. And really, in reality, if you think about it in terms of processing, dyslexia and hyperlexia are pretty much opposites of each other, but that's not how it's represented in the um, di diagnosis or the names that we typically use. So back in the 1970s, there was some research called the dual coding theory. And it's not something that really gets talked about widely in educational circles, and it should be. The theory goes that you, you have two visualization systems in your mind. The first one is um, concept imagery, and that's making movies in your mind. And we almost all of us do that subconsciously. It's why when you go watch a movie about a book you've read, you go, that wasn't quite how I pictured it. Because subconsciously, that's how, that's what we do when we are reading. And, and also listening too, to a degree. Like if I say, go put your shoes by the door, you're subconsciously making a picture in your mind or a movie in your mind. And the reason is, is because memory is encoded visually. A picture is worth a thousand words. And so it's going to be able to be downloaded into your long-term memory much easier if it comes in as a picture than if you have to remember every single one of those words. And now for a word from our sponsors. Today's show is sponsored by me, Amy Bodkin Consulting Services. You can find what we have to offer professionals at amybodkin.com. We offer consulting services for professionals, whether you are an author or a therapist who works with children, um, especially if you have questions regarding autistic clients and the autistic experience. I bring my professional experience, having been trained as a school psychologist, as well as my personal experience as being an autistic adult with a variety of learning disabilities, and as a mom to kids who also are autistic and have a variety of learning disabilities. You can also go to our website and check out the new course that we have available that is specifically geared towards ABA therapists. The purpose of this course is to examine what we are doing as professionals and how we may work to strengthen our ethics and to reframe the way that we think about children to provide a more positive, nurturing environment that will lead to more long-term positive goals as well as reducing trauma in children. Check it out at amybodkin.com. The other type of visual imagery is symbol imagery. And symbol imagery it's when you picture letters and words in your head. And in English, this is really important because English grammar was created after the language was developed. And so we've got all these crazy spelling rules and a ton of exceptions. And so the easiest way to learn spelling is to visualize the word and then to be able to just write it down. And as we become more fluent, that's how people typically do it. Now, if you have weak symbol processing and you can't see letters or you can't see words larger than maybe three letters, well, that's what we often will describe as dyslexia. And so uh, 
it means that you don't end up spelling as well. Usually you'll have trouble with learning math facts because math facts are symbols and they involve symbol processing. Um, a lot of times you'll also be a slow reader because you have to sound more things out. And sometimes, now there is this description of dyslexia as being where letters jump around and wiggle and move and that the lines will cross. Um, that's really a completely different subtype. And usually that involves visual processing, the brain processing what the eyes have sent to the brain, which is completely different from symbol processing. And so really they're not even the same thing, but they're often put in the same category and they don't respond to the same types of supports. So that is definitely where you see a breakdown in a diagnosis that has been lumped by the symptoms and not by where the symptoms come from. And truth be told, sometimes we don't know where the symptoms come from originally, but we are continuing to learn. And some things we are beginning to discover. And those are the questions that we need to be asking in psychology today. Where is this coming from? Because that will help us decide what will provide the best support. Now, if you have the opposite issue, a weakness in concept imagery, that tends to affect comprehension because you can't remember enough without the pictures to be able to fully comprehend what you're reading or things that are being said. Generally speaking, that's how it works. Occasionally people find a different way around using maybe um, emotions or feelings associated with different words to help encode it. But the standard tends to be making a movie in your mind. And so these are complete opposites and they have complete opposite strengths and weaknesses. A dyslexic person often is very good at art and creativity and uh, a lot of them like to draw. They usually have excellent comprehension. I can remember books that I read 20 years ago without ever having looked back at the book. Small details about the scenery in a scene. And it's because I have a strength in concept imagery and a weakness in symbol imagery. On the other hand, with hyperlexia, you often see a real gift for memorization, uh, decoding, spelling. My youngest has been able to outspell me since he was five <laughs> because he's hyperlexic. Usually they're very good with calendars and dates. Frequently someone will tell me a date for something and my son will say, we can't do it then. You have this going on. And I haven't even opened my calendar yet, but he knows it. Uh, and maps, maps are big. And also, usually there's a bit of a strength in music. Music tends to go more with hyperlexia. But there are also the weaknesses in uh, comprehension and being able to write about or answer questions about or follow through with something that was written. On the bright side, when it's written, you can go back and reread it. If it's just said orally, you can't. 
So that's one example where these these diagnoses they are not they're not really they're not really designed to describe people as people. We don't focus on the strengths of dyslexia. We focus on the negatives because as a society we value reading and academic learning. We focus on the strengths of hyperlexia. And maybe some of that's because reading ability can be measured. Comprehension is a bit harder to measure. Yes, we can measure it to a point by comparing how different people do on different types of questions. But it's a little bit more of a fuzzy subject than straight reading or math facts or writing. And so, in a way, the name hyperlexia sounds like more of a positive than dyslexia, even though both can have extreme strengths and weaknesses. And the th same thing goes um, with the autism diagnosis. So after the DSM-4, they removed the diagnosis of Asperger's. And the reason that that has kind of fallen out of favor, especially recently, uh, at least to a degree, in part because Hans Asperger's was a Nazi doctor who was responsible for many children being um, exterminated. But with the autism diagnosis now, we have different levels, level one, level two, and level three. And supposedly, they are describing functioning level, which I don't really think respects the fact that children are people. Because people's ability to cope within their environment and what they're capable of isn't static throughout the lifespan. It changes as we grow and change and as our experiences vary. So to say someone is a level one or a level two or a level three, what, what are you trying to say about who they are? And can you say that about someone in all circumstances? Maybe in one setting they would get a level one diagnosis, and maybe in another setting they'd get a level three diagnosis. It doesn't, it doesn't really respect the comple complexity of individuals. And then another, another diagnosis that I have a lot of issues with is the gifted diagnosis. And I have multiple reasons for this. For one, it doesn't really respect the challenges that a gifted child has. A child who is diagnosed as being gifted very often is developmentally asynchronous. They are not balanced. And they can have a lot of frustrations in social development, sometimes in communication, um, lots of different areas. And so when you hear gifted, a lot of times people see it as a positive and they don't even associate there being any difficulties with giftedness. Uh, another reason I have a problem with a gifted diagnosis is because what is the opposite of being gifted? 
Well, if you look it up, the opposite of being gifted is being stupid. And I don't think that that's an appropriate way to talk about anybody. And furthermore, there are so many different theories out there on intelligence, and we still can't even really define what is intelligence. I know we have intelligence tests, and that's how we tend to determine if someone is gifted or not. But those tests are developed based on different intelligence theories, and they don't truly tell us how smart someone is, because we don't know how to define smartness. <laughs> so you can you can definitely determine how someone's brain processes using an intelligence test. You can see if someone has more of a strength in verbal processing or visual spatial processing. And you can see even strengths within those categories and also whether or not they have a strength or weakness in processing speed. But it's not the test categories that matters. It's about, and it's not even the scores that matter so much. It's the space in between the scores that matter. We want to find balance. And the difference between scores is what tells us where there's a weakness or where there's a strength. And that's really all that we can know from those. So there are a lot of problems with these different diagnoses. And sometimes the language we use, it doesn't show that we value and appreciate people for the amazing and complex individuals that they are. It tends to reveal the kinds of attitudes that we have and the kinds of things that we value as a society, whether for good or bad. Diagnoses can be really helpful when they're able to connect us with others and to create relationships with others who have experiences similar to ourselves, who can help us learn more about ourselves, and when they can connect us with different resources. But the language we use and the way that we treat people with different diagnoses does reveal a lot about who we are as a society what we value, what we don't value. And diagnoses can also be used to dehumanize others. I'm not typically a big word person. I tend to think in pictures, not words. I had a teacher in high school once who used to say, words are power. And even though I don't think in words, I have to agree with her, words really are power. And how we choose to word things influences how we subconsciously view others and how those others are treated. 
We've talked a lot about psychology and about various diagnoses and some of the problems that come with some of those. Obviously, we didn't cover it completely extensively. But what are the consequences of these attitudes uh, and diagnostic language that we use? Why does it matter? What are the consequences that make it a problem? Why is this worth talking about? Join me next week as we talk more about how diagnoses and the language that we use can lead to dehumanization. Thanks for joining me. We hope you had fun listening to today's episode and gained some new insights into the wonderful variety of people in our world. You can find out more about Amy's advocacy work at amybodkin.com. And remember, special needs kids are people too.